iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Good evening and welcome back to the Apple Store Soho for tonight's Meet the Filmmaker event. Uh, Meet the Filmmaker is an event series that we bring to you through Apple Retail that brings you up close and personal with some of today's top filmmakers. Uh, the events are recorded for a podcast series, which you can find on iTunes. Just search for Meet the Filmmaker. And you can subscribe to the series. As new events are published, uh, you can automatically download them to your computer and enjoy them from your home or your iPod or iPhone. Um, so we're really excited today to have director Richard Linklater here. Uh, he's directed films such as Dazed and Confused, Before Sunrise, and School of Rock. And he's here today to talk about his new film, Me and Orson Welles. The film is a romantic, coming-of-age story about a teenage actor, played by Zac Efron, who lucks into a role in Julius Caesar, as it's being reimagined in the year 1937 by a brilliant, impetuous young director named Orson Welles at his newly founded Mercury Theater in New York City. Uh, a little later, you're going to be treated to clips from the film and uh, be able to participate in a Q&A session with director Richard Linklater. Uh, also joining us is guest moderator David Schwartz from the Museum of Moving Images here in New York. And uh, we'll bring them out in just a moment. Before we do, take a look at the film's trailer. Enjoy. This is the story of one week in my life. It was the week I fell in love. The week I would make my Broadway debut. What the hell is it now? And the week I would meet Orson Welles. John, this kid's gonna play Lucius. Will you work for nothing? Orson! Quiet, I'm negotiating. Orson's very competitive, very self-centered. This stage is where history is being written. Very brilliant. Okay, listen, people. Nail your words to the back wall, and that goes for the rest of you. Consonants, consonants, consonants. And don't forget the vowels. Don't criticize him, ever. No, sir, there are more with him. Not more with him, more with him. This is Shakespearean verse we're speaking. I know my lines. And I say you need more time. <laughs> so tell me who you are. What are you offering? Wealth, travel, fame. I can take you to movies that have all that. You're cute. The whole show is in shambles. He is an arrogant... I am Orson Welles! And every single one of you stands here as an adjunct to my vision. You don't like the way I work here? There's the door. There is water breaching the deck. Sabotage! This is the essential Orson Welles moment. We might have a show that closes Thursday night. We might have a show that people will remember for 50 years. Orson wants to stay with me tonight. Want me to fight for you? Because I will. You've only known me for a week. Well, sometimes you remember a week for the rest of your life. Images of magnificence. That's what you see in every great actor's eyes. That's all that matters in this world. I'm proud of every member of this company. Gotta be one of those magic nights tonight. Can you feel it? It's showtime. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming director Richard Linklater and our guest moderator, David Schwartz.
Well, welcome. I, I just hey, want to give um, Rick an introduction. I, you know many of his films, but he is really one of the pioneers of American independent film, and he's become one of the most versatile and talented filmmakers. Uh, you can applaud now. I was going to tell you his films, and then, you, then you'll have to applaud again. Um, but uh, Slacker, Dazed and Confused, Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, uh, Waking Life, The Newton Boys, Scanner Darkly, a little film called The School of Rock. And, um, and then he's just made this wonderful film called Me and Orson Welles, uh, which you've seen a piece of. And um, I guess I'll start with the obvious question, which is, what was the material? This was based on a book, so could you talk yeah, about, yeah. about that? Wonderful novel by Robert Kaplow, who teaches English right over here in Summit, you know, New Jersey. Um, it's a very charming historical recreation of this moment. It's kind of a lesser-known moment in Wells' life. You know, everybody thinks they know Wells very well, but... You know, this moment was his theater years. You know, theater being an ephemeral art, you know, there's hardly anyone still alive who remembers this production or who saw it. But, uh, you know, it really is this watershed in his life. You know, he's only 22. I always called this, like, young Mr. Wells. You know, it's kind of, we know what's coming, you know, but this is a lesser examined moment in his life. And we've tried to do this very exacting historical recreation of this was the first Mercury Theater production. He had been with the Federal Theater, with John Houseman, the, um, the year or two, last couple years, done some very famous stage productions. His, uh, you know, quote-unquote, Voodoo Macbeth up in uh, Harlem with an all-black cast, you know, doing Macbeth. Um, Cradle of Rock, you know, he was starting to do more radio. He was already a big star, but, you know, it was still kind of on the rise. So people talk about this movie as a coming-of-age story. It's you know, for Zach's character, he's this high school kid who lucks into a small part in the play. So has this whirlwind week, you know, leading up to opening night. But it's kind of his coming of age, but it's also Will's coming of age. You know, he's only 22. He's kind of, you can see him kind of finding the parameters of his own particular genius and his own personality. Right. He's kind of pushing the boundaries. The appetites are bigger and maybe, you know... Unquenchable. Um, in a way, when I, when I was watching it, I was thinking, so many of your films are about this period in life where you, all things are possible, you know, and, and you have yeah. to sort of decide what to do. You're, kind, you're either out of school, um, and, and you, don't, yeah. you haven't settled in, and so you can sort of do anything, and, and that's true both of, of Orson Welles, but also of the character that Zac Efron plays. Yeah, you know, there's a few scenes in the movie where he's still, he's still in high school, he's a senior, but... Uh, you know, he gets this part. So he's, you know, he was just a theater geek kind of kid who comes in on weekends on the train and goes to theater, goes to music stores, watches plays. He knows everything about the culture of that moment. So he gets this lucky part. So he's just kind of wide open. There's a wonderful line at the end. He and Greta, a character played by Zoe Kazan, they're just talking about their futures. And, you know, he's like, well, yeah, it's all ahead of us. You know, right. I just kind of like that moment in your life where you're sort of open. You don't know specifically what you're going to do, but you know where your passion's, you know, taking you. And in this case, it's the arts. You know, she's an aspiring writer. He's an aspiring actor, writer. Who knows? You know, he's only 17. He's going to be, you know, he doesn't really know exactly what he is going to be. But, uh, you know, he wants to be, as he says in the movie, you know, he just wants to be a part of it all. Now, when did you decide that it was sort of possible to do this? Because you have this, you know, big stumbling block, which is that you have to have an actor who can somehow believably portray this larger-than-life figure of Orson Welles. Yeah, I mean, that was... I mean, I had optioned the book with my own money, and we were, you know, Vince and Holly, you know, had done this wonderful adaptation. These are colleagues of mine, the, the Palmos. 
we we were working on it, but I mean, it's a hard film to get done in today's industry. You know, they kind of have quit making films like this altogether. You know, anything to do with period, you know, they're like, so, but, you know, we had the script, had the book, and now I was saying, well, before we go any one step further, let's find someone who can play Wells or let's get the right actor in there because I'm not doing it, you know, if we can't get the right Wells. We can't disrespect him. I mean, it's such a hard thing to cast. So, you know, you run through the usual list of people and you're like, well, are they right? Something didn't quite feel right. And I remember theorizing just among ourselves, you know, you know who our Wells is? There's some guy, he's probably doing Shakespeare in London, looks a little like him. That's where we'll find him. And about a month later, I got an email from Robert Kaplow, the novelist, saying, hey, come check this out. 16 shows only in a little theater on 49th Street, 50-seat theater, the smallest theater in this theater complex. Uh, Yeah, right here in New York, um, there was a show called Rosebud, The Lives of Orson Welles. And it was this actor, kind of had a resemblance to him. I said, oh, my God, are the, you know, I got to go check this out. So I flew up from where I live in Austin, Texas, and saw the show. I think it was the second to last show, or if not the last show. And uh, I was like, wow, pretty close. You know, I mean, he had the look. But the, his show concerned a later phases in Wells' life. It touches on War of the Worlds, but it's mainly he has like a fat suit and noses. He's Wells kind of older looking back at his life. But it was a wonderful show, and Christian is this big personality. And I thought, wow, there was something there. And... Uh, you know, I just got to talking to him after. He had sort of been tipped off that there was maybe a film in the works. So uh, we got to talking about it. And then I, I flew him to Austin, and we did, you know, just an old-fashioned screen test. You know, we did three scenes from the movie. We, I cast a few people, you know, costume, period costumes. I got an old car. We shot the scene. That's, there's a scene in the movie where they're in an ambulance. Wells famously took an ambulance between theater and radio. He was so busy in these years, you know. But uh, <laughs> at least that's the myth, you know, that this is a kind of movie that goes with the myth, you know. So, um, but Christian seemed like a great guy. He had never really done a film. He was a, a theater actor. He had been in the Royal Shakespeare Company, you know, but I was the, when I said, oh, he's doing Shakespeare, he says, yes, I was. I was playing a eunuch. And uh, he tells a really funny story. You know, you think he's doing Richard III, but he, was, he came later to acting. He's actually, and this is, this is really the key to his performance. In that trailer, you just you see a glimpse of it, but the, it's this kind of amazing transformation he does. I mean, he's British, but um, he's got the looks and the mannerisms of Wells, but what he really brings to it, I think it makes it far more than, a, than an imitation, is that he himself is this kind of Wellsian guy. He's this world-class concert pianist who had toured the world playing... Um, who was told from a young age, you know, he was such a genius because he is. He's a musical genius, and he's a big personality, brilliant, brilliant guy. So he has this kind of Wellsian quality. The funniest he, thing he I read about him it. was that he said that he, he was the only person ever who had to lose weight to play Orson Welles. <laughs> was that true? Yes, it's it's true. It's true because <laughs> he's playing such a young Wells. Right. So, right. but it showed his dedication. He because we met in June, I think, and we didn't start shooting till February. So we had all that time to start working on this. It was such, I'd never spent so much time with an actor on a role than this. And it wasn't like I was telling him how to play Wells. It was just, he's so smart. He had so many questions. This is his first real movie. So we just had this long dialogue forever about 
Wells and about the movies and he had so many questions and I don't know. It was... You've always had a great knack for casting. I mean, Dazed and Confused, you, you discovered you know, Matthew McConaughey and Parker Posey. Uh, this film has really interesting casting because you, uh, you have this discovery of Christian McKay, but then you have Zac Efron, who is certainly well known, yeah. but this is a different role for him and he's really uh, wonderful in this part. So could you talk about Yeah, it's a weird here? combination. It's like a lot of British actors. That was Eddie Marzan playing uh, John Houseman. So we, had the, we shot this in London, so I had so many great British actors, you know, the stage and the screen. Um, they came in for the movie. But then the key part, besides Orson Welles, you know, once I found Christian, the hard part, from the next one was who plays the teenager, who you, you see the story kind of through his point of view. And, but it's a very demanding part. You know, he, he kind of ends up falling in love with Claire Danes, this older woman who works at the, at the theater. She's not an actress in it. But, um, you know, I needed someone to kind of be a leading man. He goes toe-to-toe with Wells, sort of beats him yeah. at his own game for a while. Like, a little while, yeah. <laughs> Wells kind of underestimates the kid, and he yeah. realizes, oh, behind his back he's got Sonya and all this stuff going on. And then it was, it's kind of game on in Wells' mind. But uh, you needed someone with that charisma and that leading man quality, and, and Zach has that. You know, people who maybe might be surprised, or I've heard people go like, oh, that seems like such an odd choice, but I defy someone to find another actor of his generation who who's, has both a song, you know, he's kind of a song and dance man. He's a, he's a throwback himself, but a uh, real leading man quality, a lot of charisma, but camera we, loves yeah. him, and he's, he's really smart. He's a really good actor. And there's an interesting twist. I don't want to give away any of the plot, but sort of what happens with Claire Dane's character. She's sort of not what you expect. So, Yeah, she, she plays kind of Orson's Girl Friday, and she is kind of a throwback to kind of a screwball actress. Claire's one of her favorite actresses is um, Barbara Stanwyck. We talked mm-hmm. about that, and I was like, perfect. You know, <laughs> confident, smart, you know. It's, so Claire's kind of a modern uh, embodiment of that. So she's, she's a wonderful actress. So lucky she did the movie. Yeah. One thing I want to ask you, and then we'll open it up for questions from the audience, uh, but you talked about throwback. And the, the world of the film, there's such a great atmosphere in the film of uh, the sort of theater world in, in New York City in the 1930s, yeah. but you couldn't go film on the streets of New York. Um, oh. So could you tell us how you made this physical production? Yeah, I mean, recreating 30s New York, obviously that's so long gone. If you were to walk on West 41st Street where the Mercury Theater, you would never know. There's no theaters on the street. It's just kind of a, a big office building now. So the theater, the world at that time is so long gone that we had to kind of recreate it somewhere. And we ended up shooting, we created West 41st Street on uh, the back lot at Pinewood Studios. And we shot all the theater interiors on this, this wonderful old theater we found in the Isle of Man, the Gaiety Theater, which was built right around the same time in the 19th century, about the same time as... Um, the Mercury Theater. So it, yeah. the architecture, everything about it was to scale. And they had that wonderful understage area. We, Wells famously had these trap doors that you, you, emer- actors emerged out of onto the stage in darkness and came out of the trap doors. And we were able to use this understage area. So hmm. it just helped in the, in the recreation. So, you know, we got lucky with our locations. I mean, it was a tough film to make. We didn't have much of a schedule or budget, but all these things kind of helped, you know. Okay, so raise your hand. If you have a question, we have a microphone. So we, raise your hand. We did a lot with CGI, too, skylines, and it's amazing what you can do now with some green screens and all that. So, Question a, here in the front. Bit of a trick. Um, I just had uh, two questions. Um, what, was the, what was your process in, in the editing room? How much did you have your say in the final cut? 
and also um, I'm assuming there wasn't a whole lot of room for improv, but were there any moments that you let the actors kind of uh, surprise you or did you get anything that you didn't intentionally uh, sh seek out? Yeah, I mean, actors, I, I rehearse a lot. You know, this is about theater. So, yeah, actors, we came up with a lot. Every movie I've ever done, there's a ton to rehearse. I'm always looking to take it to some new level. I think any good director would be. You know, you want to get the most out of your actors. And so many, we, everyone involved, that was the charm of this. We all love the backstage story here. Every film and theater actor, we've all had this experience. So they brought a lot to it. Little mannerisms, little a line here and there. There's so much. You know, Christian was so well-versed in Wells. He had a lot of ideas. Zach threw in a bunch. So, yeah, it's, but it's usually not when the camera's rolling. I do all that in rehearsal. And on the day, maybe a few things, but not. It's pretty much determined through a lengthy rehearsal process. And as you were asking about editing, um, this was a lengthy film to edit. There was, you know... I shot a lot more of the play, and, and toward the end, um, you see the production. It wasn't, it wasn't just like a montage. You actually see entire scenes from the play, kind of from the audience's point of view, the way you would, you know, we were trying to wow our film audience of today the same way Wells did. It's all those lighting effects, and you get a sense of the play. But we filmed, even when we filmed it, I knew that would be more than we needed, but it was good for the actors to do and kind of good for the, the production in general. But, you know, in the editing, it, it took a lot of... A lot of passes, I think, to just whittle away and get the pacings right for for the film. But I I like I like that part. And as far as final cut, I have final cut, so I, I don't have anyone. I mean, I I like listening to everybody's notes. And you have a screening with a small audience or something. You just get a feel for the pacing. But you know, this wasn't a studio film. You don't have no no. You kind of live in the editing room. I've worked with the same editor. I think this is our. 17th project together or something we kind of share the same post-production brain at this point sandra dare so uh you know she can just look at the footage and know what i'm going for and then i just kind of come in and hone performances and talk about it but it's it's ultimately about pacing working that through so okay over here Hi, Richard. Um, I just want to say I'm really excited for the movie. I read the book, actually, um, a year and a half ago, and I, like, fell in love with it right away. Um, it took me, like, only, like, a few hours to read. I didn't even put it down, so I've been really excited about it. Oh, great. Um, I did hear from a few reviews of people who have seen the movie already, and I was just wondering what made you decide, like, certain parts of, like, to portray from the book and not, because I know, like, one aspect, I hope it's okay to bring this up, but, like, Richard is Jewish, and I really like that aspect because they bring up a few, like, a really few good scenes in the movie, but then I heard it wasn't really mentioned in the movie of his character. I was just curious, like, your view on that. Yeah, well, Vincent Holly on the adaptation, it's kind of something to go, I don't know, hasn't Hollywood been doing that forever? And take a Jewish story and make it none? I mean, that was a joke, kind of. But uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. There was one line that sort of disturbed me, because Sam Lev, the stage nine, who you see that fight with, like in the book, there was a line, I never even talked to Robert about this, but he, he calls him like, you're a, you're a credit-stealing Jew. And that just seems so harsh. You know, like, Wells, you know... I, no, no history of anti-Semitic, but, you know, I just thought that would be so harsh on film. Maybe in the context of the book, it, you know, it, it works or it's just part of, part of that. But I don't know. It just didn't, you know. I was just curious. I, I don't know. There was you, one we scene, lost yeah. a lot of his home life and a lot of his interaction with his own friends. Mm -hmm. I, we realized early on that what's going to work or come alive is everything around the theater. So we only have a few scenes of him at home. We're in the book. You know, like any adaptation, it's always an interesting process. You, 
you know, it's hard getting movies started. Books always have long intros and, you know, sets up everything. Films can kind of jump right in. And so we had to get to the theater as quickly as possible. So a lot of stuff kind of went out of there. But I don't know. Down here. All right, a couple things, Rich. Um, I noticed that uh, you know you 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 go back and forth between things that are funny and things that aren't. Some and uh, like some people you think of as having a specific uh, direction, you you throw us off. There'll be one movie you'll think is one way, and then you're going to go and do something else. So how do you how do you mix that up? And then are you going to stage the, the uh, you're going to redo this uh, show as a, a play? <laughs> I mean, you're going to do the Shakespeare. You'll You'll, yeah, I'm, I'm half joking. Well, I have a question. No, what do I do that's that's not funny? What's funny? well? I mean, no. <laughs> I mean, you, you do things that, but yeah. even fast food nation, as bleak as it yeah. is, it's funny. There's funny Bartons yeah. all well, the way. Well, you have funny, but it, you don't think of that as one of your. I funnier get movies. No, no, it scared people, but I didn't. Uh, but you have balanced out some yeah, films yeah. that are. No, some films are more overtly. Like this wouldn't be. This is kind of a comedy. Like I said, it had shades of screwball comedy and stuff, but. Some are more overt comedies, like School of Rock, Bad News Bears. You know, those are like, I like that. It was just, you know, unabashedly a comedy. And then the other, the dramas, I always like to think are funny. You know, like, find a lot of humor. That's just, that comes out of a lot of, you know, collaboration, working with cast, and just having kind of a funny view of things. But uh, this film is like that. I think it's more drama than comedy, but it's where it's funny. I think it's really funny. But I mean, you so. pick things that throw people off, you know, that, yeah. that I wouldn't necessarily think is your next project. Well, well, thanks. I mean, over the years, I, I think you earn that with time. You know, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, um, you, you know, people put you in a box. You know, they say, oh, this is the kind of film you do. But I just approach every film like something I'm interested in, whether it's the history or the characters or something about it personal to me, some, something I'm writing that's very autobiographical. So it's just like we all give ourselves a lot of latitude for various interests. So why? So it shouldn't be unusual that someone who's in any art form is trying to do a lot of different things. You know, when some musician steps out and does music of a different kind, well, you got to remember every musician loves music. Not just the kind that they themselves can do, but, you know, they might push themselves in another genre, another, you know, so everyone's trying to box everybody in. But I'm kind of glad, like, 11, 12 years ago, I didn't get that. I made a film called The Newton Boys once, which to me was as personal and fulfilling as any film I've done. But the vibe at that time was what, like, wait, what are you doing? You don't, you can't make a movie like this. <laughs> you know, this isn't your kind of film. I'm like, yeah, it is. I co-wrote it. I discovered the story just very similar to this film. And uh, yet, at that point, I didn't really qualify to make that film in people's minds. But over time, now it's like, oh, you do all kinds of things. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> Latitude. We all, everybody wants that. So. And the second part of my question was doing theater. Uh, although I jokingly said, you, why don't you no, restage this? But that's do a you good want point. We were that? that close. I mean, here, the whole cast is theater actors. We had the, state, the original stage design. We had the score. We had rehearsed it. We had the costumes. We had the cast. We had, knew the lighting. We really were that close to... Wouldn't it be great if this week that play, you could just go see it in some theater and a recreation of... Like, no one does that much in theater where you recreate... You oh, It's always restaging and modernizing and doing new interpretations. But to do a old-timey theater piece that was radically modern in its time, but 72... I mean, that would be wonderful. And we, we actually talked about it. I, it would have been a lot of fun. I saw a film... I mean, I saw a play a few years ago 
Clifford Odette's play that had been restaged like that, Awake and Sing. I thought that was wonderful because it was like I'm in the 30s watching this play from that point of view. And I thought that was great to evoke that exact time, style, everything about it. So. You had a lot of fun with the music, speaking of 30s. I mean, the jazz in this film. Oh, yeah. I love them. I'm a geek that way. I really love the, um, the music from this era. And uh, it was just grabbing a lot of music out of my own collection, you know, mostly, and making that work. It was all the original recordings. Like I said, I'd done this movie before that had been set in 1918, 1922, and none of the music from that era are the masters usable, really. They're just too scratchy and noisy. Where this era, 37, by that point, the studio recordings were pr pretty good. I mean, you know, they hold up. So I only had to recreate partially one song when there's a scene where Zach sets off these sprinklers and this big disaster is going on on the stage and uh, Benny Goodman's Sing 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 is playing and I had to kind of widen that out into the surrounds and get a deeper sound and we recreated that in the recording studio but the, the music here is a lot of fun it's a, it's a big element you know at this era there's music everywhere you know music stores everyone played an instrument music 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 was everywhere so I wanted the movie to reflect that you know mm -hmm. This one down here. It seems like you have a lot of fun when you're making these, these films, but how do you define success in terms of, you know, um, each of these projects? Obviously, I, I think I, you always hear directors leave a little part of themselves in each project. So how do you define success in terms of this project and previous projects? Yeah. Well, success, I mean, I learned early on, my definition for success in movies was getting to make the movie, <laughs> just getting it finished. Like, that was success. Like, and leaving a part of yourself, yeah, I, I leave every project, even my bigger comedies, there's something really personal, like, of all the subjects in the world, why are you doing this? Well, obviously, it resonates with you, and you found your way into this story, and you, you personalize it. So, yeah, you leave yourself, not only in the movie, but in all the characters, everything you touch, you know, you feel that way about it. So, yeah, I, I learned early on that it's just the process, you know. That's all you can control, you know, if, how films do at the box office. Like, we have this unfortunate yardstick that's emerged even in just recently, you know, last 20 years or so that, you know, the box office is printed on the front of the paper. Oh, number one, all that stuff. It's, it's kind of a ridiculous notion with art, but uh, everyone's so, we live in such a material, you know, horse racy kind of world where that seems to be the yardstick. Everyone's buzzing about how much money Twilight made over the weekend. It's like, well, great, you know, good for them. But I don't know, you know, it's like, that's really not the yardstick you can bring into your work because you can't control that. You know, I've done a lot of films that haven't been distributed very well or to some, some do. You, you never know. You just never know. Audiences just don't want to see a movie at a certain time. You just never know. But you can't let that affect. Obviously, you want people to see the movie and enjoy it, but... I learned a long time ago, first film I ever did, you know, it's like, well, you know, if you're lucky, that works out. But the, the, the goal is really just to do the best you can within what you can control and just enjoy everything else, you know. So. Of course, Orson Welles himself, I mean, his career um, is often, a lot of people consider, um, you know, Citizen Kane to be the high point and then say he sort of floundered after that, but that's... Yeah. Um, he says well, he started what, at the top and worked his way down. But you know? how do you? What, what has been your view of his career? Because he certainly made films that over yeah, time yeah. have been recognized. It, it, making this film about Orson Welles, it's been interesting to just feel it in myself. Like my views of Welles, kind of like Charles Foster Kane and Citizen Kane. You know how that changes every time you see the movie. 
you have a different feeling of Wells and, and Kane. You see him in a different light, you know? And I kind of feel the way of, that same way about Orson Welles now. All these years I've been watching his movies and uh, thinking about his life. And it was fun to touch on his early life, but, you know, you can't help but think about all of it. So I'm kind of at that phase now with Wells. Like, early on, you're just sort of in awe of the achievement, you know, like, oh, my God, you know, you could never do that. And you, I still feel that way. But um, you, I found myself a little more critical. Like, once you've m made a few movies and you see how it works, especially in the studio system or all that, it's like that whole world is like, well, why did he leave? You know, I found myself critical, like... It, you know, don't leave the country before your film's absolutely completed or, right. you know, come back and fight for it. Or, you know, he, he got, he was sort of... Which happened with Magnificent Ambersons. Yeah, right? famously yeah. with Ambersons. I'm like, well, the first time you heard something was going on, why didn't you fly back? You know, so you, I found myself, the filmmaker in me, more critical at times. Or like, well, maybe he's not his own best friend in some of these issues. And, but, um, you know, now I'm just so... Uh, accepting of the whole thing when you know you accept who he was his personality and you go oh it couldn't have been any different this was wells was never meant to fit into any system he was we're lucky just through sheer chutzpah you know he got kane and ambersons made the way he did and even though he had trouble at the end of ambersons you know he was never meant to fit into hollywood that's why they resented him so much here was this 23 year old going out there with a better with more he didn't care about money he wanted all he cared about was the art, was the control of that. And he had final, the idea of final cut was unthinkable then. And he had complete control over Citizen Kane, you know, studio or people would come on the set and he would tell them, you know, he would stop working and say, hey, look at my contract, you know, get out of here. I mean, I, he didn't, you know, I don't know, endear himself, I guess. He was a little willful in his maestro, uh, you know. <laughs> super director status so i think people have been kind of they were they were had their knives out you know for him they wanted him to fail i think yeah. after so much success and so much talent i think there's a force in the world that wants to bring you back to earth a little bit it's just natural in the media and even in everybody you know they just he was too big a force for his time for all time you know so but so many of his films were considered box office failures yet are now yeah. looked at as masterpieces. Yeah, I don't think he, and, he didn't have yeah. one film that I didn't think anyone considered a, a financial success. Even yeah. Kane yeah. was kind of thwarted in its day. You know, Hearst, the Hearst Corporation famously wouldn't advertise. And he was ready to do a roadshow with it, you know, show it and, you know, set up theaters and show it. And that would have been, you know, bring that showmanship to it. But he didn't. Yeah. And it wasn't seen as a big success. I don't know. I think maybe his life and career would have been different if he would have been able to work maybe longer with John Houseman, he really needed a, a guy there helping him hmm. in those waters. And I think Houseman was dropping out of his life right around the time they were starting Kane. Hmm. That was sort of the end of their partnership. Hmm. So, you know, he probably needed that, but I don't know. You just accept it all. I mean, it was interesting being in Europe, you know, he's really seen as just a master. They, you know, here's a guy who made masterpieces in three or four decades. He had that long, very, active career he was doing radio he did you know he did so much yeah. you know he would tour doing magic shows and he, you know he really was such a public personality and i think for young people today if if you're not at least 35 to 40 you have no memory and this is striking for guys our age to think about this but we had memories of wells growing up he was this big guy on talk shows right with that voice and orson doing... wells 
you know, wine commercials. and famously wine commercials and, you know, he was dog food, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, uh, but I didn't know till I was older, like why Orson Welles was Orson Welles. He was just always Orson Welles. You know, he's this bigger than life character with that telling stories and, you know, but, uh, yeah, then you find out who he is. But if you're, but he was this iconic figure. So if you're, you know, he died 24 but years ago. I mean, he yeah, was it was my, weird. I yeah. mean, it's like, hey, who's that? You know, he's just right. talking all the time. What do you do? You know, <laughs> but um, so people don't, if you're younger, you don't remember that part of him at all. So you just, all you have is the art, you know, which is kind of great too. That's maybe pure, purer right. relation, you know, that you can watch the movies and li- re-listen to some of his radio and, and all mm-hmm. that. But uh, yeah, he was sort of cursed with that. Uh, <laughs> long life but i don't know i i watched this video of him it was very touching um the last night of his life he died later that night but he hmm. he uh did this very elaborate amazing card trick on the merv griffin show you know he was again a host you know not a host he was a guest on the show very elaborate card trick that you know it's like wow how do you do that you know even magicians are like i don't know how he did that very, you know he's kind of wowing them to the end huh. you know that was he was put on earth to wow us you know, and he did it in every way he could, radio, film, I think in person, you know, if he was a greatest dinner companion ever, apparently, you know, he'd just tell you stories, little magic tricks. He's the kind of guy who would go to a Hollywood party, you know, with a rabbit down his, you know, pant leg. So he could, two hours in, yeah. pull a rabbit out and just amaze everybody. And, you know, and that so. comes across, that, <laughs> that sense of Adam comes across in the yeah. film, like he just... It's not going to be boring. No, no. I think, and people say, oh, he seems like an egomaniac who's yeah. kind of a jerk. It's like, no, no, no. He must have been really fun to be around. If, if you could find your place within his world, clearly he's the boss. Clearly he's the genius in the room. If you could, you know, so you look at guys like Joe Cotton who had these long careers. You know, they were friends for life and Cotton was in a lot of his movies and they remained friends. And, you know, that's, he found his place in Wells, you know, universe so that's how it is you know sometimes when you i've been around people like that and uh you know you if you can accept your rather subservient position in their world it can be pretty fun but that's a choice you have to make zach efron's character in this he, he's 17 he doesn't quite know that he even though people warn him not to criticize wells or he's the boss and you know don't contradict him he sort of does that out of his own emotional state because he's in love with Claire's character. So you see him kind of misstep there <laughs> fatally, you know, painfully. He winds it's, up in Orson Welles' youth, pajamas yeah. at one point. Yeah, right? yeah. Right. In the book, it starts, this is a story of the week of my life. I <laughs> made my Broadway debut, fell in love, fell out of love, and slept in Orson Welles' pajamas. You know? <laughs> we don't have voiceover in the, in the movie. There's a little in the trailer, but right. it's a funny line. Okay, there's a question right down here. Um, you're talking about the latitude of your work, but you didn't mention also um, like a waking life and animation. I was just wondering your background. Um, what did you study early on that you that you were you have like such a wide interest? Because animation you normally wouldn't fit in with a live action act, um, director. Yeah, where does animation fit in? Well, I'm not an animator, but uh, those two seems appropriate at the Apple Store to talk about Waking Life and Scanner Darkly. We did those all on these home computers. But uh, that was just a storytelling device. You know, a director, your job is to, you know, communicate with the audience and make these kind of decisions, how it should look, how it should feel, all these choices, you know. So I just felt, you know, some friends of mine were developing this software 
in the earliest stages where it was drawing over live action footage, kind of this computer variant of rotoscoping. And I was like, wow, that, you know, the live part of it and then the artifice of it, it just, there had been this story I've been thinking about for about, at that point, seriously, around 20 years, 18 or 20 years, I had this story in my mind and it never worked on film. The live action version in my mind just didn't work. But once I saw that technique, I was like, oh, that's how this should work. So it was a great convergence of, of technology meeting a storytelling desire. And that's how that marriage happened. And then Scanner Darkly, I did a few years later. That was just for the same properties that I felt that technique worked on the audience perception. I thought that worked for that particular movie where the questions were identity and not the, his ever-shifting reality and his, the unreality of it and the, the questionable reality. Because I think that's where your brain goes when you're looking at that technique. It's like, what's real? What, you know, part of your brain's the rational part saying, you know, this is an artifice. You know, this is clearly a construction. The, another part of your brain's accepting it as reality because the gestures and the sound and everything. So I don't know. I thought it put it. I don't have any other stories currently that work with that. But th that was perfect for those two movies. But, you know, you, some, this movie's in Cinemascope and color. You know, other, you know, you make all these, I'd call them like palette choices you know you set like a visual rules for what you're trying to do what you're trying to accomplish and everyone you collaborate with everyone around those those goals you know, background in art not really i'm not a very good drawer at all you know i'm more <laughs> of a you know uh i don't know no no i just i can appreciate working with artists like that was like working with composers same with music a lot of interest in it you know, a big fan, <laughs> but you know, you just film is collaborative that way and you get all these talented people to work with you on things and you bring everything you have and they bring everything they have. But you know, you asked about range of stuff. I don't know. Everybody has, think of your life. You have so many interests in so many realms. It's not uncommon to, you know, for, so for me, it's just making a film about something I'm interested in. And you know, it's a different, it can be as minimal as a something that happened to me or is, you know, historical book, you know, it's, it's all fodder. And is it it's all, f yeah, I don't, I, I don't have a line, you know, like, oh, here's my life. And then here's the kind of films I do. They're, they're kind of blurred together. Like anything I'm interested in, I'm trying to find a story. Like right now I have five to 10 probably ideas or stories then everything can fit into them. And some of those keep going and, Usually years go by, and if that one's still in your head, that's probably worth pursuing. The ones that scare you a little bit and yet compel you. Like the, in the arts, that's a good way to, a good track to go down. I've never made a movie where, oh, I know how to do this. Oh, this will be easy. Oh, you know, I've got this one figured out. No, every, <laughs> everyone is like, I, that would be the disaster, I'm sure of it. Every film it has to be almost impossible. There's something about it. There's a sense of wanting That's to experiment. To like, it's yeah. almost like you have to invent a form. You know, slacker. <laughs> there wasn't a model for slacker. Yeah, it's good when you when you can't describe what genre you're in. You're usually in in the good place. Like right. that's yeah. That's and good. fast food nation. You know, you take yeah. basically a nonfiction book and say, you know, you did it as a real interesting narrative experiment. Yeah, you try to create a narrative where there really isn't one. But I've always been interested in that in cinema, like how the audience. You know, we create narrative out of stuff that it just pieces. You know, that's how our lives unfold. You know. You, we all live in a narrative of our own life where we're, for better or worse, the lead <laughs> actor. And it all kind of makes sense. But, it, you know, like a lot of life, it only makes sense in reverse. 
you know, what got you from here to there, you know, so, and yet it's comprehensible. So I think movies have a lot of, the properties of movies are the same as dreams, you know. You really can, with the right amount of information and context, you, you sort of can find a narrative in something that is hard to explain on paper, but uh, on an experience level can work as a film. Like that, that's a strong property of cinema that's, that's still out there that people can discover or, or push. You know, it's not cinema somewhat cursed and I'm, here I am making a movie about a stage production but you know film is often cited as being kind of cursed with the theater this three act structure and the properties of theater in film haven't always pushed the film medium to where its own potentials but film's still pretty young you know it's you know what 115 years old now or when Wells reinvented it in Citizen Kane, it was only 45 years old. That's yeah. amazing to think of, isn't it? A medium, <laughs> yeah. an art medium, only 45 years old at the time, ripe for reinvention. You know, Wells was born definitely at the right time for that. He yeah. could reinvent cinema, radio, theater, but he was born at the wrong time to be an indie filmmaker. You know, if he had been born in my generation, this was the heyday of getting films made, world financing, there's a market, there's specialty theaters. That was so non-existent until more recently, really the 80s, you know, yeah. Cassavetes, you know, struggled with all that. So those guys would have definitely done better in the modern times. But, you know, he wouldn't be the same Orson Welles, you know, <laughs> you know. Okay, there's a I think question. We have time for one or two more questions. Okay, so we have one right down in the front row. Thanks. Hi. Um, I have a film related or film industry related question. Could you, could you, what are your thoughts about um, the recent downsizing of, of Miramax and um, its implications for indie film? Well, he's asking about the downsizing of Miramax and the, the disappearance of so many of those companies. I mean, I've been doing this just long enough. It's really sad. I mean, it was weird just to kind of wake up and realize, oh, you know, you live in this deluded world that it's just art you're trying to create, but it hit us, you know, as an industry, even in the distribution and everything of this film, it's like, wow, our, our quote unquote industry is this market that has, you know, collapsed. It's just, I didn't know I was living in a commodity, you know, that this was a thing that could fluctuate like that. But I think there are a lot of factors in that, but, uh, I don't know. It's, it, there's always been cycles and stuff. You hope it, um, you know, new, Clearly things are changing and it's a new, something's being reinvented. We don't quite know what yet, but it's probably ripe for that, you know. But the exact form that'll take, I don't know. But the old world that, you know, when I just said the heyday of indie, I say it almost in the past tense now. <laughs> <laughs> that we, It never feels like a heyday when you're in it. You're just struggling to get your next thing made. But now looking back on the immediate past, I'm like, oh, that was a pretty good run. You know, I even see films I made in the last, you know, whatever, 18, 19 years that I go, oh, I could never have gotten that made mm. today, you know, and I heard guys say that a long time ago, and say, oh, you're sounding like an old fart who's, <laughs> you know, but I hear I'm kind of going, hmm, things change, you know, but what's an example of everyone that? Like, what, will admit that. What's an example of a film that would be really difficult to get made now? Well, most of them, I mean, but uh, certainly Days and Confused, that was done at Universal, they wouldn't have done that, you know, I had no stars in that. It was six million, so the equivalent would be about ten or eleven million today, maybe twelve. They wouldn't put. They don't make that kind of film anymore. They're like a big comedy sequels, ten, you know, two hundred million dollar team. The the real issue here is 
Hollywood, while the indie specialty world's sort of going away, Hollywood's in their heyday. You know, they've really got it down in the marketing of these huge films. They know how to do that. They don't miss, like, you know, 10, 20 years ago, they'd make a $100 million film that would make, like, $1 million at the bottom. It'd be a huge bomb. They, they, that was a more volatile. Now, I think it's through sheer marketing prowess and spending and, you know, spend 100, 100 to 200 making the film, spend a, a hundred distributing it, and it just makes sense to stockholders and a business plan. Like, that's a better bet than a bunch of these. Like, this is called, this kind of film is called, uh, I love this term in the industry, execution dependent. That means it actually has to work or be good, you know. Bam, <laughs> you know. <laughs> wow. And then maybe someone will see it. But it's true if you have to look at it like a, a mark, you know, it's like those other films, those big ones, who cares? Does it really have to? Was, did Twilight have to be good? No one's even talking about it. Who, it's, a, it's a phenomenon beyond its own quality. It's just more of a marketing <laughs> extravaganza. So it's just the sad fate of, of, I mean, it's a bonus, you know, when it's good. You know, everybody's like, Dark Knight, it's really good. Did you see it? Dark Knight's brilliant. I go, well, for $180 million or whatever, yeah, I hope it should be pretty good, you know? <laughs> There's talented people involved. I, why are we surprised when it's good, you know? <laughs> that okay. should be the bottom line. You know? I think we have one more, so we'll try to end on something less depressing than the Yeah, I'm sorry. Of... I didn't want to go That's, off on this. Okay. I, I, I mean... try to be optimistic and feel positive well... about everything, and I do overall. You know, we all have to be, but it is, it is weird times we're living in. Uh, hello. Uh, just, uh, you mentioned that uh, you like to rehearse your films. Uh, I, just, I was just curious about your uh, rehearsal process. Uh, if you do a full rehearsal or just key scenes, something beyond a ter table reading. And the second part of the question, what was the process to finding the right wells? Uh, not falling into an imitation and not, yeah. you know what I mean? Well, um, your rehearsal question, I do a lot of rehearsal. I mean, it starts at a table reading, but you get out of that pretty quickly, you know, hopefully over several weeks. And some characters need more than others. And, you know, it's sort of like being the coach, you know, of a team. Some people need a lot of rehearsals, some need less. Some scenes need a lot of work. As a director, when I'm rehearsing, I'm really, I'm directing the movie. I'm figuring out how I'm going to shoot it. I'm figuring out, we were rewriting it. You know, some lines just flat don't sound right coming out of someone's mouth. And you have to change it. You work with the actors, all that. So it's never pre-rendered. It's never rendered. You're not never rendering something that's totally set. That said, so many directors do that. Like Hitchcock famously you know, I've heard the Coen brothers have everything storyboarded and, you know, it can work. It can work. But it's just you bring your own insecurities, your own maybe limited skill set to what you do. And I need all that rehearsal just for me. You know, I've worked with actors who are like, oh, I don't want to rehearse. And I'm like, I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for me. I'm trying to figure out how this film's going to work. So, you know, I demand a lot of rehearsal. And hopefully, I mean, that's the definition of a collaboration is whether it's with an actor or a DP or production designer or anyone, you want to go as a collaborative partner. You, between you, you want to take it to some place neither one of you could have got to alone. So that's the definition of a successful collaboration. You kind of keep pushing each other. And I would define that as Christian Mackay, who plays Wells here. I mentioned earlier about finding him at the, you know, in that play and everything, and I spent a lot of time with him, but it wasn't... I wasn't telling him how to do wells. I was really just making him feel comfortable in that environment, answering his questions. And he tells a story like he remembers me kind of going like this a lot. You know, he's big and theatrical. I was always kind of, 
little less. And he, he <laughs> says, and then one day in there, you were kind of like, you know, up. So I guess we had dialed in on, you know, the wells. And hopefully that happens the first day of shooting. You know, by you get it right to, you know, like you don't over-rehearse anything. If a scene's totally working, obviously that needs a less of your attention. It's the scenes that don't work, or the characters. If you've cast well, that's the cliche. Casting is, what, 80, 90% of directing. And that there's something to that. When you get the right people, you know, you spend a lot more time with someone who's maybe miscast or not quite. You find yourself working with them a lot more just to kind of get it to fit into the, the big picture. So, uh, I mean, it's very important, you know. But I, I always think performances, they're the director's fault. You know, if you don't like something, it's they've either been miscast or you, they didn't create an atmosphere or you didn't give them enough tools to do their best work, whether it's script or, or anything. If it doesn't come off, I think it's the director's fault. And yet when it works, it's really theirs. They're like an athlete. They did the achievement. You know, you can't claim anything. You can say, well, I, you know, threw a little water, you know, you know I helped, you know, in the garden, but they are the, it's theirs that oh, they you can, achieve. You can be like Orson Welles and take all the credit. <laughs> <laughs> I thought Welles is actually really generous, and he has yeah. this reputation. But if you look at the credits to Ambersons and Kane, and you know he's introducing his Mercury Theater, he lists himself last in the cast. He shares a credit with Greg Tolan, the great DP he worked with on Kane. That's true, and he does this thing yeah. where he shows the actors at yeah. the end to remind I, you who people. Yeah, he gives their faces that had, yeah. hadn't really been done in cinema much. He shows you their their name and face, puts a face to. You know, their real character. I find that really touching and giving of him. So I think that's, that's who Wells, you know, in his mind, that's who he was. I think he gets, all that stuff falls on him because he was such a huge personality. We project egomaniacal status right. onto him. But I don't know. I, I think there's a, there's a part of him that was that generous. And, you know, sharing the card with Tolan, I don't, you don't, yeah. probably a guild that emerged w wouldn't allow that today. But Greg Tolan actually came to this theater, this, uh, theater production of Shakespeare, the Caesar. Wow. And when he heard Wells was in, uh, was going to Hollywood to make a film, he set up a meeting and said, hey, I saw your Julius Caesar. I want to work with you. What you were doing with the lighting. And yeah. so thus was born here the greatest DP director, you know, collaboration yeah. in history. Because he's in Hollywood like two or three years later doing Citizen Kane. Yeah, so. yeah, it's amazing. But, you know, you yeah. never know what comes <laughs> out of anything in this world. But, you know, it's, a, it's an early... Uh, an early nugget, an early seed was planted. Well, I guess you we'd know, say so. this is execution successful, this film, or something like that. But, <laughs> execution uh, dependent. Still <laughs> dependent, yeah, definitely. So, but uh, congratulations. Like, it's got a lot of great acting. Anyway, great well, I hope work. you guys get a chance to see the movies. So. Okay, thanks a lot. All right, thanks for being here. The film Me and Orson Welles uh, releases here in New York this Friday, November 25th. Be sure to check it out. We want to thank director Richard Linklater and David Schwartz for coming out today. And to you, you've been a wonderful audience. Uh, join us again tomorrow. Actor Matt Dillon will be here talking about his new film, Armored. And visit our store's website at apple.com soho to see our complete schedule of upcoming events. Have a good night.